Welcome to Creative Confidential. I'm Jude Kampfner, and today I'm talking to a very wise photographer. His career has had many chapters from rock and roll to the misty landscape of an island in the Bay of Fundy. From Broadway portraits to abstract images that come from rotting poles in the water. He talks about creating mythologies in his photos. Peter, we don't have time to do justice to the full body of your work. But what I most want to do is to absorb how you look at your world and what you capture. So let's start with one feature of your work that I love, which is the incredible way you pair images. Like we'll see an upside down pot being made. And on top of that is the hull of a boat. Can you talk about that? This interest in pairing things which are often quite opposite. Yeah. Well, first I'm getting over being called wise. That's a lot to live up to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, the, I got into the pairing thing uh, long ago, and I, I realized that when I place images next to one another, they provide a context for one another. And then if one changes the context of a particular image, you change the one next to it, you change your perception of the first image. And that has always completely fascinated me. And I've tried to get it right for now for whatever, decades. And I'm still trying. I'm still trying to get it right, but I'm fascinated by that way of looking at things. Do you look at the natural world and try to see something that's real as if it's abstract? <laughs> well, things are real, of course, but we're not putting something real in our camera. We're just putting light in our camera, and the way it bounces off these things we call real, and these things we call real, we often mistake for in language we call nouns. The light that's coming into our camera isn't always coming off a noun. Well, it's literally coming off a noun, I suppose, but it kind of bounces off ideas and feelings on the way into the camera. And we shouldn't confuse it with things. That's where you mentioned the word mythology. That's that's where there is a place for photographers to examine just beyond the world of what we normally call real things, even though you're building blocks are photographs of real things. (laughs) It's sometimes hard to find that in between place, but if one is alert for it, it pops up. So the first thing you look at is the way that the light illuminates the thing you're looking at? I'm just trying to be aware that I'm not putting a tree in my camera. I'm putting light in my camera and the way it has bounced off a tree. And the more that you do that, the more you see something different, I guess, the more trained your eye becomes. Yes, that's one way of looking at it. There, I can't think of other examples. I always have to find ways in, ways to see past the conventional and the normal. And it can be one thing or another. I'm always surprised at what takes me into that place. And sometimes it happens in the editing room. I, I, see, things, I see things that I didn't see at, at the beginning. I think in the photographing, the 
the key is to simply be present in ways that surprise one all the time you know <laughs> surprise and seeing the unexpected or moving through a space that's moving with children or with a river or whatever it is what we're putting in the camera is the present and to do that you have to be in the present is that something yeah. that you have to practice is it a kind <laughs> of a muscle that you have to keep flexing do you have to do like a daily walk where you bring your camera with you? Yeah, uh, you know, dude, I, I used to do that kind of thing more. And I used to make more of an effort to do this. And maybe I've become trained. I don't, not really, because it's always the surprises are by definition a surprise. You can't have a formula. But yeah, I would try harder when I was younger. And now that I'm 75 years old, I try less hard. But it surprises me that so many things are still showing up on my on my contact sheet. I, I hardly notice that I'm making pictures. I'm just living my life and um, pictures happen. It's one advantage uh, maybe of uh, having stayed alive this long. And how do those pictures happen? Well, again, there's no formula, but I'm just living my life. So this summer I've been up here in this Canadian fishing island, Grand Manan, and my brother's been dying down in uh, Massachusetts. And so we've had to travel back and forth and various things happened in both places and including scanning a lot for my brother, scanning a lot of family pictures, pictures of my father and mother, and all those things, things happen. That's, like, that's my real life and things happen in my real life. And the iPhone is a big, I'm ashamed to admit, I've stopped carrying around the heavy camera, another advantage of age, I suppose. It's a nice instrument for this approach to photography. It's always in my pocket. When I see something, I can, I can record it. One thing I've always thought is I've been on the periphery of Zen practice my whole life, never a good good Zen student, but in the meditation hall in the old days, more, more so than now, they had a thing called the keisaku or the waking stick. So yeah, the teacher would come behind the rows of people and, and would, would come behind you on a good or bad day and whack you on the shoulder with a stick. Didn't really hurt, but it was a surprise. And it's supposed to wake you up to your, your practice. And in photography, I find that I'll be in a situation and, and something will be happening in front of me. And I don't for a second and a half realize that I'm actually the photographer. <laughs> and it's like a waking stick. It wakes me up to, oh, wait, I'm not being present. I'm not present. Get there, be there. <laughs> It's a gift. So, uh, let me try and understand that. So you're you're out in Grand Manan and you're walking and then it's like you're walking past something and you suddenly think, wow, I should register that with my iPhone. It's not so, uh, I don't know, language-based or rational, really. I just, no, I can do that without thinking these days. I, I can, it just happens. And, and I can also put myself at the best angle without thinking about it. I've tested it. I've gone, just trusted my instincts about angles. And I go back and I try other angles afterwards. And I find that I generally went to the right spot. On the few occasions I have students, I often tell them photography is done with one's feet as much as one's eyes moving into the space and moving with the space it's more like being a dancer than a than a like a stone statue i've seen pictures of you on the ground photographing a boat lying down under the hull is that what you mean like you're using your whole body yeah it's like a yoga it's like a yoga exercise you just go where the picture tells you to go it's not that conscious 
Although I have tried it as a as literally a yoga exercise to, I don't know, bend over and look through one's legs between one's knees and things like that. And it does it does wake one up and you can you definitely can see things when you move around in unexpected ways. So you need to be open to the element of surprise. Absolutely. I mean, who isn't? Well, no, most people are not. <laughs> yes, but on a good day, everything is a surprise, literally everything. Give an example of something on your island that surprised you this summer. Well, yesterday I was walking across the kitchen floor and saw some dust on the floor that I felt I needed to pick up and put in the wastebasket. But suddenly I noticed that there was light glinting off the dust and I got down on the floor and, you know, made, made a picture of the, of the dust on the floor with the windows in the background. I'm sure there are more romantic examples. Than that. That's intriguing. That's really like looking at the minutiae of life, isn't it? It's noticing small things and it's noticing big things. It's, it's being um, flexible with one's eyes and mind because while I was down on the ground with the dust, the, the sky and the ocean were happening as well. So Yeah. When you say you use the iPhone, I think lots of people will find that kind of gratifying but also intriguing because is it a little bit of a cop-out? It could, it could be depending on what you want to do with the picture. So one of my uh, lucky things in life was I was partners with the assistants in the Avedon studio. So I had the highest level of technique uh, around me. I was always the worst one in the, in the group, but at least my standards got higher. And I was photographing with a Hasselblad in the studio and mm -hmm. doing the best I could. But the goal there was to make a beautiful print, preferably as large as you could. And uh, we had a beautiful dark room and, and I did some of that. And now my end product is a screen product. The amount of information that's in the iPhone or in any, any camera these days is way overkill for more or less <laughs> all but the biggest screen output. So I'm finding it's perfectly, all, the, the stuff I get with the iPhone is perfectly all right for, for what are my goals. But do you use it in a way that's far more sophisticated than the average person? I'm closer to an average person than I am to one of my Avedon partners. No, I'm not. I, I'm interested. I mean, I'm interested in quality and the quality of the image, of course. But I'm also interested in what the images are, um, what's in the image itself. And how can I put it next to another image that's related, not repetitive in content, but is somehow some I can put an image from China next to one from the beach out the door here. Yeah, that, the pairings thing, that's, that's kind of how we started out. Another thing that's interesting is in your career, you've used these pairings, you've used these photo, mon not montages, but photo sequences, and then you've gone to writers and poets and asked them to give you words to it, which is kind of the other way around in terms of normal process, which is somebody writes and then there's an illustration. Yeah, and I've discovered, I've never thought of myself as a writer, but I, but I would scratch down some words, and uh, mostly now I'm using my own words to go with the pictures, and uh, people aren't laughing at me so far. The New Yorker actually just took something I wrote. I don't consider myself a writer, but, but I do think that sometimes pictures don't quite say enough. It helps if a photographer is explicating what their intention a little more, giving giving the viewer a little more chance to get inside of where 
I want to go with something. When I make a picture, I'm not really trying to do anything. I'm just being present. But in the editing process afterwards, these are my building blocks. They're my vocabulary. My words are, are the pictures. And I, I've had various occasions to travel all over the world, more or less. And they'll be on an, some assignment or another, and I'll have a job to do. But I'm always aware that I'm also trying to build my vocabulary of images, and that I can use in later years and put it with something from Berlin, with something from Beijing, and in a way that will be either mythic or, in some way. Echo in this case the common、uh, elements of humanity or some some such. And now I'm I'm privileged to be working with that and doing a kind of mega project that I'm trying to get right <laughs> with all these images from around the world. And what is this project? Oh God, I'm calling it now the Land of the Living, which a professor friend has told me is the Sumerian transliteration for the name of the Garden of Eden. So、the Garden of Eden literally was outside of Baghdad.、It、still is there. The, the New York Review of Books wrote about it in recent times. So with these these so-called mythical mythological images, I was kind of trying to tell my version of Genesis of of how we got here and and what it looks like with contemporary images. And、uh, it's <laughs> it's been a pleasure to try this, but it's hard to get it right and it's hard to make it communicate. But I like this title for it: The Land of the Living. Because the Sumerian idea seemed seems to be that heaven is the life that we're leading right now. It's the words that are coming out of our mouths right now, and、uh, that's a that's a conceit that I identify with. Death and decay are they they've always been quite important to you, or did that kind of start at a certain time in your life? Yeah, well, that's interesting. That was more fascinating to me when I was younger.、Oh. <laughs> now that I'm falling <laughs> apart. <laughs> when I, was, I grew up in in a in a kind of woodsy place, so I was always trying to make sense of the trees that had fallen down and were rotting away, and the mushrooms were growing on them. And so it was, it's you know, kind of especially for a young photographer, for but anybody, it's a it's a metaphor for for this thing we all have to go through, death and dying and decay. It was powerful for me. But you、yeah. know, the more you've been around, the more you bump into your own cliches. That's interesting. <laughs> you don't quite let yourself get away with things as easily as you might have once. But but that's very kind of self-critical, which is is great, really. I mean, it means that you haven't become sort of self-indulgent with your work. I'm trying not to do. I'm trying <laughs> trying to stay on the edge.、Um, yeah. Your father was a cloud scientist and tried to capture. The essence of fog, right? So, it, do you think that's really influenced you trying to capture the elusive in your work?、Uh, yeah, nice catch, Jude. That、um, that's true. He was a cloud physicist, and his his side job was to be up here. He came up here in the late '30s、uh, in the Bay of Fundy to、uh, bottle fog and and analyze where it came from. And his research led to the、uh, was the basic research that was used to pass the Clean Air Act. They had no other data from the '30s, but <laughs> after he observed the、uh, fog for seventy years, I think the Boston Globe asked him, "What? Well, what? What did you learn in all your all your studies?" He said, "Really, really nothing. I didn't really learn it." <laughs> <laughs> he was just—he did. That's not. That's he's being overly modest. He he was one of those that invented cloud seeding and he did did a lot of stuff. But I think what I got from my dad was the idea of being fascinated is enough. Wow. Just, yeah. 
which is kind of Zen, isn't it? I think they're somehow related. Yes. Yes. When did the Zen influence hit you? <laughs> I was laughing because when I was in seventh grade, my English teacher, we, she was good at teaching how to diagram sentences, but she asked us to write an essay on the purpose of life. And I wrote that the purpose of life was to have fun. I might put it diff- a little differently now, but but basically that's being fascinated is enough. She refused to give me a grade and forced me to rewrite the paper, said that my idea was unacceptable. <laughs> witness to what happened in 9-11? Uh, 9-11, so I lived on Bleecker Street right above, right above the Trade Center. I looked out the window at the Trade Center all the time, and I thought a helicopter was landing on my roof, and of course it was a plane, and, and I, I watched it crash itself into the buildings, and I yelled, holy shit, it's probably the wisest thing I've ever said. And I also realized that this, this was instantly a nexus of, of human history that I had just watch uh things before and after would be different and so I, I went and grabbed my camera photographed for three hours and when i put down the camera to go get it film developed i started shaking all of all over i was i was cool cool until until i put the camera down yeah and then the uh, we all know this all of us who were in new york know that the next three or four days were so tender lovely to be with people people knew each other wanted to know I, I was with I was at Blue Hill restaurant two days after and, and the, the owner sat down with the busboy at our table we were the only customers and the busboy they all told their stories busboy told us from Brooklyn he said he said the word had gone out to the thieves to stay off the pile nobody nobody was to steal anything everybody was so tender how did you get the photo of the smoke coming out of the building through a wine glass <laughs> that was <laughs> You're confusing two pictures. The, the the wine glass picture of the trade center was a few years before, and I just it was just a nothing fancy, just a picture of the trade center through a half a glass of wine. But I, what I say about that is that I didn't see that picture until I had the second glass of wine. <laughs> but did you not kind of post that picture at the time of nine eleven? Was it like to show I, somewhere around there? I probably did. Yeah, yeah, seemed to pull people's heartstrings a bit. Yeah, it's quite a poignant picture. Yeah. Yeah, I have pictures of the, you know, the actual event, and I don't really, I, I'm not that curious to see them. Let's talk about you being an assistant to Henri Cartier-Bresson, the groundbreaking photographer. This was like in the mid-70s, and you were doing a piece about New Jersey, is that right? Yeah, it was 1975, and was a lucky break for me. But as that happened, I, I had been photographing uh, Bruce Springsteen for the three years. Uh, I, I was working at Columbia Records, and he was the first guy to come in for an interview in 1970, January 73. So I just did some simple pictures. And they were used as Bruce's first publicity pictures. And then I was kind of a little bit on the road with him. And then I was working in 1975 at the bottom line with him. And that's the same time Henri came in and, and 
he was given a choice of anything in the states to photograph and he chose new jersey and we all said <laughs> why new jersey which ended up being the title of the tv show that was produced but he said it's because it's a microcosm of the united states and he was really curious about it but it's interesting now from this perspective because 1975 his portrait of new jersey was that's the new jersey that bruce sprang out of that was bruce's world give he, us some idea of the sorts of pictures he took we went to jersey city and did all the stuff around there and to and to the pine barrens and to the nuclear plants and to the wealthy parts of western new jersey with monets on the walls and we went to newark and and um rode with the police and fire departments we we attended a stabbing we went to the Leica factory in northern new jersey we never went to atlantic city that was my that was my big mistake did you do but, any um, mafia mcmansions yeah i guess so we did suburban areas and uh we pretty much yeah we we covered all the aspects of the state so what did you learn from him i mean i'm sure many <laughs> people have asked you that question i learned many things from from Henri. um one of them, one of them was i was 28 years old and he was my god so to speak i, I worshiped the you know ground i learned with huge respect for what he did every frame that he did some were better pictures than others but every frame was perfectly composed in a 3-2 format but i learned that once gods walk on the same earth that i do it's they're not in a different world that all the things they do are available to us and we just have to wake up and, and do our our version of such things so you went from doing rock photography you were the photographer at the club that you mentioned, The Bottom Line, which is still around, where there were music performances by pretty famous celebrities. You did Broadway stars. Do you feel like you've really moved away from that now to the more naturalistic world? It's not a conscious thing. Uh, at some point, I did get the feeling that I was like a hired gunslinger. I would get paid for doing those kinds of things some of the time. And I had the urge to be the artist instead of to be the one that was illustrating the artist. And uh, that, that urge served, served me well. On the other hand, I learned so much from the performing artists that I was engaged with. And I photographed a lot of Broadway shows. So I, I dealt with actors and I dealt with musicians. And I was thinking yesterday that now I'm up here in the fishing country up on Grand Manan and, and I miss, I'm starting to miss the incredible magic or presence that, that a great actor or a great performer brings brings to an audience. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. I'm getting nostalgic for my New York life, but it's, it's quite a gift being a performer and bringing presence. It's the great gift that a performer brings. What about the ego? Are you glad to get away from that celebrity egos? If you're trapped in a room with somebody like that for a long period of time, it gets to be a problem. But usually I was in and out and uh, they they were as needy of me in a situation as I was of them. Like the, the, I got taught a great lesson by Mick Jagger, of all people. I was asked to get a picture of him there for the PR. And, and it was the closest thing to being a paparazzi that I had ever ever encountered it made my skin was crawling it's just not who i am i like to work cooperatively with people but i had to go outside and get a flash picture of him exiting the club and all so i did that he got in his limo and then he got out of his limo there were 
two or three of us there, and photographers, and he came up to each of us and shook our hands and thanked us. That was the great lesson in the symbiosis between performer and, and photographer. He was saying he needed us to be there as much as we needed the, him to be there. That was pretty unusual, right? That he oh, recognized yeah. you. Yes, it was totally. But yeah, other performers, you're usually in, you know, unless it's simply a stage to audience relationship. If you're working with them, then it's person to person. It, it, it can become quickly quite normal. Did that show some humility on Jagger's part? I thought it was a great move by him. And that's probably a reason that he's had such a long career, that he has perspective on, on who he is as, a, as an actor in the world. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if you could give me a tiny instructional lesson. <laughs> Last weekend, I went for a walk to my nearby park and there was an annual medieval fair and there were um, various events. And one of them was jousting amateur people, very dressed up, you know, uh, shields and, and armor and breastplates and helmets having sword fights and you tried to take some photographs and trying to document something that I hadn't seen before. Do you think I should have focused on aspects of the costume that they were wearing or should I have focused more on the interaction of the fights? <laughs> I know I'm putting you well, on the spot. I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, no, no, it, that's kind of easy. You just do what, where your camera tells you to go. And you do all of those things. And you do the, uh, the funny shoe in the, in the dusty grass. Make your eyes go close to things and also see the wider shot. Yeah, you do everything. Go where your camera tells you to go. So you kind of immerse yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely immerse. That's the whole thing is to forget oh. oneself. It's the same as in every other art. To forget oneself is the key. That's why we do this stuff. You know, I, I've listened to you, some of your other shows and your other artists you speak to. They're all basically saying that it's about forgetting yourself in order to jump into the flow. But that takes a lot of self-confidence. It would have meant I would have had to disregard the people around me. You know, people were jostling to try and, and see as much of the spectacle as possible. I would have had to kneel down and, and maybe climb up on a rock. And that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Getting a different view from everybody, not getting in people's way. Is to, that's important. I, I, I value that. Not becoming the object. A lot yeah. of photographers think they're the show. They jump in and make a show in which they're the center of things. And that's like appalling. It, it's not the point. The point is to uh, be in the space and, and let the other people have their experience in the way they want to have it, not get in the way. Photographing in temples, you know, and you know, of all sorts, sacred spaces, is that's incredibly important to just not be the object of attention. One quick tip for the iPhone. Do you like the portrait setting? I do. I should use it more. I do. I do like it. It's useful. What I what I particularly like are the um, the three lenses, and I try all three quite often. You can go quite quickly between the wide the wide view and the other views. To use those really quickly is kind of a gift, and sometimes it's quite surprising. I'm finding myself going wider a lot more than I used to. Telephoto things I find it can be overused if you can't get closer by walking like the more closer you get by being in the picture by walking into the picture the more intimate your picture will be and you include, you include context with the whatever your subject is you see what is the world this subject is living in you go wide 
Wow. Are you still as interested in posting on Pinterest and Instagram as you used to be? No, I, ne- I never, and I, I was never interested in Pinterest. I, somebody posted for me once, uh, and I tried. I tried really hard on Instagram. I, I went to a great effort to put up pairs of pictures and so forth, and I did it for I don't know fifty or a hundred posts, and I would get forty, sixty, and it's satisfying, and but not really, and it didn't grow, and also. <laughs> I learned quickly to turn off the notifications. It was it's a trick to make you care about it and make think this is the most important thing in your life. And I've more or less let it go now. Yeah. I just wondered if, you know, isolated on this wonderful island, it's a way of keeping in touch. It is. And Facebook is the newspaper and the only method of record of communicating on this island. There's nothing else. It used to be that we had uh, in the old, old days, we had party lines and the way you communicate was by listening in on everybody else's phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm up here, at least not down in, down in the States, I choose to live as much as possible with the tides and the fog and try to let the, the tides and fog specifically tell me where to go at a given time of day. Okay. So, in conclusion, what are your goals that are left for the island, for documenting the island? Uh-huh. That's a good question. Uh, well, I just got a book contract to, to do my book, which is called Disappearing Before Our Eyes, Stories from Grand Manan Island. And so I'll be working on that. And I know there are some holes like the salmon farms. I don't quite have enough of the salmon farms and editing because so I'm doing it as pairs. And I want those pairs to be as powerful as I, as I guess can be. Now you can give me an example of, of some pairs that you want to do. <laughs> no? <laughs> no, I'd love to. I just, my, my brain doesn't work that way. <laughs> so the salmon farms are disappearing? No, no. The salmon farms here on the island, there's about 12 different farms, uh, which each have about 12 different large cages. There's millions of salmon around this island. There's, the tidal flow is huge up here in the Bay of Fundy. And so it's an ideal place to do the salmon farming. The problem for me is that it started out as individual people doing it or leasing the ground, and now it's all one big company. It's a corporate thing, and the people that work for it are working more or less on an hourly wage, as opposed to a lobster fisherman in the old days would own their boat and would go out with two crew members and or one and split the catch, and you were your own boss, and you came home and made your lobster traps, and now, now cash is caches you need to buy things from off the island and the, the corporate economy is invading the island yeah. yeah that's a lot of what my book is about that's what i mean by disappearing before our eyes the old the old maritime cultures is giving way to the corporate world well i look forward to that when's it coming out uh they they tell me they want to turn it around for next spring uh, i'll believe that when i see it <laughs> fantastic <laughs> peter where can people find you what what's the most important link well, my disorganized website is petercunninghampotography.com. Okay. So thank you. Thank you for appearing and taking time and giving us a glimpse into your world and your career and helping me maybe take better photos of my little iPhone. I can't <laughs> It's a powerful instrument. And, and Jude, thank you very much for not telling me your questions ahead of time. Made it, made it a pleasure for me. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential. I'm Jude Kampfner, podcaster and coach. If you'd like my help or you know somebody who should be on the show, do get in touch. And you can email me at jude at judekampfner.com. Our theme music is by Gene Pritzker. 
And thanks to my producer, Mark McDonald at Birkdale Media. See you next week.